Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information or to send any comment or question that you may have via our contact form. You can also email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we've been walking through, surveying the book of Romans. If you're new to Relentless Truth, it might make sense for you to go back three episodes and hear kind of the the story of the book of Romans historically. I'll summarize it quickly here. We're just surveying it, by the way. We're not, uh, if you're accustomed to, if you're a Christian, you go to church and you hear sermons on the book of Romans, you know that it can take a pastor a year or two or three to to go through this very rich book. Well, the reason it's so rich is the historical context, and that is the church at Rome didn't have apostolic influence, and Paul loves the church. He knows about the church by reputation. He he wasn't hyperbolic in, in his introduction when he says their faith is known throughout the world. It really was. And they were in you know the biggest city, the most successful environment from an innovation standpoint, from a discovery standpoint, from a technology standpoint, if I can call it that, from that time. And Paul was afraid for his life. He was headed on a trip to Jerusalem and was afraid that he might die. And he loved this church. And so scholars believe that is the reason he wrote this beautiful compendium, That the reason that Romans is Romans and regarded so well and is such a thorough theology of God study of God, such a thorough work on all aspects of theology that we believe that those things caused him to write it that way so thoroughly and lovingly and clearly. The theme is the righteousness of God. The Another theme is uh, justification by faith. And uh, Paul's already introduced that. We've sort of moved through uh, chapter one, the introduction, and then the kind of an overview of God's view of unrighteousness and and he's already talked about how the the just shall live by faith. He's talked about the gospel. He hasn't very clearly explained all of the intricacies that he's going to explain. But in chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1 which we covered last time, Paul talks about our sin. He talks about unrighteousness and its implications. He talks about the fact that God turns us over, gives us over our, our he, he talks about the futility of sin and he talks about God giving us up as we sin, gives us up to reprobation, to he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, it says, to impurity. And and then it goes on to say, Paul goes on to say that God gave them up to dishonorable passions and Yes, he talks about homosexuality and he talks about a litany of other sins. He's really talking about the immoral. And and when we closed last time, I mentioned for the 20th time probably that this book, this first couple of chapters especially, but this entire letter 
is really about man's self-reliant, self-sufficiency. Man doing what Adam and Eve did, which is wanting to be like God or superior to God. And we see this in our society when people say, well, I just can't believe God would do the following. We we superimpose, in a sense, our will, our, our rational thought processes on a wholly transcendent, separate, apart from us, God. And we treat God like he's subject to our judgment when that is not the case at all. So we're going to try to avoid the, the God said it, I believe it, that settles it slogan. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're not going to just dismiss people who, who struggle with this because we all struggle with this. So we're going to just do an overview here, but we're going to talk about the critical truths in this book as we go through. And we've already talked about the immoral in, in chapter one. And we're probably feeling uh, not great, but pretty good about ourselves. A lot of people do when, when we go through uh, chapter one. But then he, Paul turns the corner in chapter two, and he says, basically, just to paraphrase, he says that moral people are condemned too. He, he expands his argument to show that the self-righteous moralists are included in all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that he mentioned before. So he decides to address the moralists. And between chapters one and two, Paul pretty much covers all of us and all of our sin. It's still self-righteousness, it's self-sufficiency, but it's not quite like the immoral folks in chapter one. This kind of sin that he talks about in chapter two actually looks better. So let's read it. And if you're driving or uh, otherwise occupied, I hope you can just bear with me. I'm going to just read chapter two of Romans. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So that's the end of verse 11. He then jumps into a discussion of, of the law and and Jewish people. So let's just talk for a minute about these these first 11 verses. So these people were outwardly moral. Just think about it for a second. The people he's describing, 
but they were living in an identical manner to what others were living outwardly. So they were inwardly living in sin, and, and that put them in the same category as those who were outwardly sinning. Perhaps their issue was, was lust rather than outward sexual sin or, or coveting instead of stealing or hate instead of murder, as Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's really interesting. They, in verse 2, we just read that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And then he says, do you suppose, O man, you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So moralists are condemned according to the truth. The goodness of God, it is the goodness of God. It is God's love for us. And Paul explains this clearly here that leads us to repentance. And I just want to pause there and just point that out for all of us. As much in my parenting in years past, as much as I wanted to give our daughter my opinion on a regular basis, the most effective time, and there, there's a time for discipline, there's a time for correction, I get that, but I think we do that way too often. And I think it's love, it is goodness, it is, in God's case, it is his goodness that compels us to repent. It's not really the checklist, although the law is helpful. It's God's school teacher. It's, it teaches us, shows us that we're sinners. It shows us God's character and who he is. I'm not discounting the law. It has a purpose. Paul's going to talk about that in the rest of chapter two. We get there. But the point here is that God, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It is the beauty of his grace and mercy if that captures our hearts, it changes our lives. And Paul is just simply saying this is true for the immoral people in chapter one, which is all of us, to be clear. If you remember the litany of sins, we can go back there and near the end of chapter one. And he talks about lying and coveting and all kinds of evil and malice and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers and insolent, haughty, boastful, and so on. So he's, he's covered all of us. So we, we like to think of it as the homosexuality chapter, and he does talk about sexual sin, but, but he, he covers the rest of us with, with these, this other list of sins. So in judging others, moralists, Paul is saying, have completely missed the purpose of God's goodness. It just is joy-robbing, joy the hypocrite, is And we all have some of this in us. I find it curious that the Pharisees get so much ink in the New Testament, so much said about them. That's because we all have a little bit of that in us, that hypocrite that likes to point fingers at others. And Paul is taking this on head on. After years of glossing over personal sin and guilt, the pride of moralists will not allow them to have a change of mind. That metanoia, that, that is the Greek word which which is repentance. Then Paul mentions that in verse 5 of chapter 2. So moral people are condemned, and this sounds counterintuitive, according to their works. 
He will render, verse 6 says, to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. This sounds a lot like all have sinned or none is righteous. No, not one that is coming up in chapter three. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Moral people are condemned according to their works, Paul says. No one measures up when we read that section. He's already started this courtroom language, this judicial language that indicts us all. If you're a pastor and you just preach a sermon and, and you really want to depress your congregation, you, you leave them there. It's really sad and it really gives us a helpless feeling. And the, the moral person, the moralist says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm condemned too. I'm condemned by my works too. What do you mean I do those same things? I don't do those things. And we have to go back then to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, if you lust, you committed adultery. And if you covet, then you've, you've stolen. And if, you've hate, if you hate, you've murdered and so on. So we go forward to verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He's just said to the Jew first and also the Greek several times. And we kind of scratch our heads and say, no, why is he, what, what does that mean? Why is he doing the Jew and Greek thing? And I've heard all kinds of great sermons. R.C. Sproul did such a good job when he was alive of explaining that and all of its implications. But in short, it really has to do with Paul building a case using legal language, language of the courtroom, to say that the gospel, these, these truths about the gospel and, and our sin apply to all of us. There, there would, would have been those in the Jewish audience who would, have, would, who would have said, you know, not sure how to view these Gentiles. And Paul is saying, no, this justification by faith applies to all of you. If you pull the camera back and you look at the big picture here, Paul cements that in chapters three and four, but he's addressed it a couple of times already here in chapter two. So then in verses 11 to 16, Paul teaches that moral people are condemned without regard to who they are. So conscience, he says, is knowledge shared with the, the individual. It's this individual inner sense of right and wrong. Being moral is not the same, not equal to being righteous. Our self-sufficiency, our self-sufficient moralism is insufficient, he teaches. Both the immoral and moral are guilty before God. So let's read that section starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So again, he's talking about Jew and Greek. He's talking about everyone. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. So You're not righteous just because you're Jewish, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature 
do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even ex- or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's talking about hypocrites. Here he's talking about Jewish hypocrites in particular. But this applies to all of us. He's talking about the hypocrisy of saying one thing and doing another. We often do that with children, don't we? You know who some of the best people, most wholesome thinkers, most honest, most candid about who they are that I encounter are? It's not adults. It's my students. It's 11th and 12th grade students. And you say, oh, John, you're crazy. How could they, how could they do that? that you, just, you just like teaching and you're looking at them through rose-colored glasses. I'm actually not. I think they're kind of unvarnished. They're unstained, if you will, in a sense. And they see things a little more clearly. Now, again, I've said this before and I'll say it many, many times. It probably goes back to their families and the, the training that goes on in these in these families at Circle Christian School is outstanding. And so really I'm commending parents for this just because of the way a number of these students are raised. But I do have to say that they kind of see through hypocrisy and they see the hypocrisy of the church, the hypocrisy of adults. I mean, we, we make, you know, I, I don't even find, and, and some of my theologian friends and seminary professors are going to get annoyed with me for saying this, but I don't even find denominations in scripture, this notion of people groups separating because of theological differences. I'm, and I'm not suggesting that it's possible just to have one big church universal and all hold hands and be happy, but it's interesting how we divide. We treat church sometimes, I'm afraid, like it's a club, like it's a, even church membership is really interesting to me. And I know some people say, well, what about purity of the church? And they'll talk about the church in antiquity and they'll talk about the Reformation and all of those things. And I get it. The body of information here is much broader than just this concept of hypocrisy. But students see through this and it is refreshing to be around them. I believe that Paul lays out church government pretty clearly in First Timothy and elsewhere and I think scripture gives us, you know, I often say it, it's intimidating to read about a job description, qualifications for a job, and then the job description in scripture. And pastors, elders, and deacons are, are all addressed there in First uh, Timothy and elsewhere. So there's this issue of, of hypocrisy, and Paul is really hammering it home. He's, he's saying, 
you moralists who are holding on to your own righteousness. You're trying to achieve the requirements of the law on your own. You are also guilty of sin and your conscience convicts you. Now he goes through starting in verse 25 of chapter two and carrying into the first eight or so verses of chapter three, he goes into a discussion of the Jewish people in several respects, but there are lessons for us today. If we look at this correctly, I think so. Let me read it starting in verse 25 for circumcision indeed is of value. If you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now he's using, I'm going to put this in simple terms, the terms I can understand. He's using circumcision to describe law keeping those who are, who are Jewish law keepers who have, and later he's on chapter four, he's going to talk about Abraham being justified being made righteous by God before he was circumcised. So this has the idea of completion of law keeping. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, those of you who are hypocrites, who are relying on your law keeping and you break the law somewhere else, it's as if you're uncircumcised. He's headed to justification by faith and he's wanting to head off at the pass Any who say, no, I'm circumcised, I'm a keeper of the law, that is how I'm made righteous. No, you are justified by faith. Jewish people are justified by faith. Imagine the Gentiles getting to experience this, read about this, see this in the church. This is a very effective lesson for them as well. He's not just talking to the Jewish people. He's talking about justification by faith. So in verse 26, he says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Hmm. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. He's doing that Jew Gentile contrast again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, notice his use of language, so strategic, nor is circumcision outward and physical. We're talking about a concept bigger than than this cutting of circumcision. We're talking about something more, more significant, different than just law-keeping, ceremonial law-keeping. I shouldn't have used that word ceremonial. It's just law-keeping. But a Jew, verse 29, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's talking to the people who sat in the front of the church and led committees. He's talking to people who relied on that stuff, that form, for their righteousness. And he's saying that that this circumcision is something bigger than this. A Jew is not one who's one outwardly. He's getting at, he's driving at justification by faith. I mean, he's moved way past including the Gentiles, although he's making a case now for including the Gentiles. And he's talking to the hypocrites, to the Pharisees, for sure. 
but he's making a broader point to the entire audience and it's brilliant. You know, I had a boss years ago. My first banking job was at Chase. It was called Chase Manhattan Bank back then. They've had a couple of mergers since then, but Chase was kind of the old line bank in New York. And I went to work for them in Pensacola, Florida, and then got moved to New Jersey, to Morristown, New Jersey, and commuted into New York for a season, for a period of time. And it's amazing. I had a, I had a boss. I mean, these guys were smart and I was just basically training. I I had an MBA and and I kind of knew how to do the math, but in the basic analysis, but I learned a lot about how business people operate. And I had a boss who practiced, I think what Paul is doing here. And I don't want to demean what Paul is doing here, but, but I think it's important to realize this, that Paul is talking to the broad audience through some individuals. And I had a boss who could do that. He explained it to me one day. He said, you know, people get ticked off when you look across the table at them and you dress them down and tell them all the things they're doing wrong. But I can talk to Bernie over here and I can just talk to him about the same topic. And, and they're here and they hear me and they know this applies to them. And they think, oh, I've got to go correct this behavior, but I've pulled it off in a way that's not so offensive. And I've I've seen that done again and again. In fact, I've done it. It's kind of a clever way to address issues without being so confrontational. So that's what Paul is up to here. He's looking forward to justification by faith. But I want to just point something broader out about all of Scripture. If you if you think about this, if you go, go home and, and read Romans 1 and 2 uh, for, for now, one of the things that's going to occur to you is that some of the lessons that you might have learned, uh, it's certainly true of me, when you were younger about the purpose of the Old Testament or about how people were justified in the Old Testament, some of the lessons we've learned, some of the Bible stories even in our, in our young story Bibles aren't quite accurate, are they? This notion of justification by faith didn't start when we turned the page from the Old Testament to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This justification, the righteousness being granted by God by faith, has been the way God has handled salvation, has handled this righteousness by faith from the beginning. Those who were obedient to him by faith were justified in the Old Testament. No one was ever justified by the keeping of the law. The purpose of the law was to drive us to the cross, tell us who God is, inform us by contrast of who we are and what our sin is. But justification has never been by keeping the law. The Bible is one big story with the cross at the center. And with all due respect to my friends who are dispensationalists, and I get all the distinctions and the number of dispensations, I understand all that. and I don't want to get in the weeds with you in this podcast. But God dealt with man by faith from the beginning, from the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth, justification has been by faith. Paul's proving that in this. If you go home and you read Romans 1 and 2, you'll walk away saying, I'm seeing something I didn't see before. 
And if you want to just read ahead a little and go look at Romans 4, where he talks about Abraham. In fact, I'll just read it just to whet your appetite. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, your, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes David. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blesses the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. In verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So he had the faith when he was uncircumcised. He was saved when he was uncircumcised. The purpose was to, those were my words, those last two sentences. The purpose, back to the scripture, Romans 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And it goes on, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Oh, how beautiful is this? Abraham was justified by faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you son, made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We'll get to that later, but I just wanted to read that section because I think it's beautiful. This doctrine of justification by faith. Well, sandwiched in the middle here is the beauty of chapter three. So I'm, I'm going to jump ahead very slightly and read just the first few verses because Really, I find this chapter division, which I know you know was added by scribes, not not really as originally written in, in letter form, but so that we can reference various sections. But this chapter division is odd to me because he's still talking about the Jewish people. So let's read the first few verses there and then we'll stop at uh, verse eight for today. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul's kind of broken them down and made his argument, his justification by faith argument, and the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then 
he starts anticipating objections. I love the way he does this. Business people, you can learn, we can learn so much from Paul. This is sales 101. This is anticipating objections and answering the objections in the body of the letter. It's just beautiful the way he does that. He doesn't do it in an appendix where he says, okay, you could have an objection here to this or there to that. No, he's he's including the objection in the body of the information. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's saying, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the law. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, notice here he goes, here's another objection. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I speak like humans speak, he's saying. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Wow. Why not just be an antinomian? Why not just be against the law? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And then he launches into this beautiful courtroom scene where he he describes 14 counts that we're all charged with and he convicts us all of sin 14 times over and it's just beautiful and we'll get there next time. So that's it. That's Romans 1 and 2. We've we've learned all about man's self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, our desire to elevate ourselves over God and judge God. Watch for it this week in people. Watch for it in your own thinking and in your own life. I'll watch for it in mine. It shows up sometimes so subtly. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's, it's the immoral sins that are listed in Romans 1. Notice just simply the number of times each week that we color the truth, where we're not candid. We don't do full disclosure, or we have a hateful thought, or we, we covet another person's goods. In America, that's almost the American way, isn't it? Some people think it's the basis for capitalism. It's not, but, but coveting is just part of the deal, and, and there's never enough. This I saw a social media post that said that when we get everything our little hearts desire, our little heart finds more things to desire or something along those lines. That's absolutely true. Notice the number of times that we do this, and then notice the moralism, the, the way that we, we become Pharisees and, and sort of act out with thinking that, well, wait a minute, I don't do those hideous things, but I'm, I'm self-reliant on my own. I just notice the number of times that we like to evaluate God while we're living in our own sin. We like to superimpose ourselves above him, looking down on him, instead of picturing him as and valuing him as the transcendent invincible God of the universe that he is. Paul spelled all that out in Romans 2. And when I saw that for the first time, it was like a light turned on and I realized some of the things that, you know, and Paul says this, and I'm going to say this clumsily, but some of the things that he says in 
and Romans one and two about the heart. It's just man. He talks about the Gentiles knowing it naturally in chapter two. He's talking about there are a lot of themselves. They by nature do the things the law requires. I think is how he says it. That's just beautiful to me because your, your gut sometimes knows right from wrong. I, I don't think we should trust our hearts because they're deceitful and evil. The redeemed heart is different, but I think it's just beautiful that Paul spells all of this out and points us to our self-sufficiency. I'll say it differently. It's very helpful to me with the way that I think to understand the reason, the strategic reason for things as much as possible. And Paul does such a good job of spelling that out in these two chapters that it sets the stage for his explanation in chapter three of justification by faith. It helps me to think when I sin, I'm actually superimposing myself above God. I have a low view of God. I'm not honoring God. I'm not glorifying God as he is with his character and all of his characteristics. I'm, I'm becoming self-sufficient and that self-sufficiency is a lonely, lonely place. It's empty. We are not capable of playing that role. It's more than we can handle. Jesus knew this. And that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with B. Well, not, he starts a section with be not anxious. And he describes how he feeds the birds of the air and so on. This is, it's just beautiful to recognize that, that the source of my anxiety is when I elevate myself. It puts tremendous pressure on me. When I'm choosing the worst of the options, I'm choosing sin, whether it's immoral sin or the sin of the moralist. I'm choosing the path that is less desirable for me. And, and just that recognition, that underlying recognition that this self-sufficiency is my problem. And self-sufficient people can look awfully humble, by the way. We can be humble in our self-sufficiency. If you listen to people talk, listen to your self-talk, your self-talk inside your head, notice how many times you become and I become the center of the universe. It's our vantage point. It is hard in America not to do this because the American way, the American dream, whatever you want to call it, is all about me and all about money and all about material things and all about prestige and all about titles. We get it wrong. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about the God of the universe. And Paul's going to spell that out in a beautiful way. We're carrying around burdens that we don't have to carry. In fact, how about this? We're carrying around burdens that we can't carry as if it's possible. It is absurd to think that a moralist thinks they have a chance at pleasing God through their own morality. I'm not an antinomian. I'm not suggesting, and Paul's not suggesting here that, well, what you do doesn't matter. No, works matter, but they don't save us. Works are important. What, what we do post-salvation, post-having faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ is very important. It's very important that we, we make good decisions. 
but we trust in him. We walk by faith. We walk in a faithful way. And we're going to, Paul's going to spell that out. And we're going to get to talk about it in the upcoming weeks. You're not going to believe it. I hope this is a blessing to you. It's weird to have this conversation with just a microphone in front of me when I'm so accustomed to teaching to students. And I can always say at the end of the class period, in fact, I often do say, they'll tell you that I say almost every week, have I caused any confusion? Is there, is there anything that we should clarify or talk about? Because I don't want to be guilty of that. We're just hitting the highlights. I know it feels like we're kind of mired in, in these sections and moving slowly, but wow, could we ever, we could parse every word and look all the usage of the words up and, and really take a lot longer. This is really just a survey of this rich, rich material. I can't wait for the rest of chapter three next time. I look forward to being with you. I hope you'll share this with others. As I said before, I was excited about many of my guests and still am, and I'm appreciative for them. Thankful that I have friendships with with really smart people who are accomplished in their fields. Thankful that they came on the podcast. But this material, this book of Romans is life-changing. The Apostle Paul is the most famous person on earth who ever walked this earth besides Jesus Christ that I could introduce you to. His writing is the most famous, and I hope I'm doing it justice. I hope you'll share it with friends. I hope you'll send some emails to friends, some texts. Link the podcast. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com, and you can find the podcast link at the bottom of the of the homepage, and you can click on that and then send the link to your friends asking them to listen. I hope you'll do so. If you have comments or questions, I hope you'll send them to me on the comment page, or you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. This country is going through a huge economic adjustment. These episodes are recorded several weeks in advance, but the solution is always the same. God's word contains the answers for us. It contains the blueprint for us, and it is just a pleasure for me to play some small role in reminding us of these beautiful truths. So please like, share, subscribe to, and otherwise tell your friends about uh, Relentless Truth. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.